You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back, Freedom Pack family. Today on the show, we've got a wonderful, thought-provoking, and highly, highly actionable conversation to bring you to the close of the week. Today on the show, we are joined by Dr. Anna Yusim. Anna is a private psychiatrist who is located on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and is also a lecturer at the Yale Medical School. I could quite literally spend an entire conversation, an entire podcast, listing out all of the awards, everything that Anna has won, both as a student and in the field of psychology. But just to name a few of Anna's achievements and recognitions, Anna was awarded the Golden Award for the top thesis written in the humanities at Stanford, the Glasgow Rubin Award for women leaders at Yale Medical School, and also the National Institute of Mental Health Outstanding Research Resident Award. Anna is now also a published author with the release of a brand new book, Fulfilled, The Science of Spirituality, which I love the title of that book. It's very, very interesting to think about. So that is what our conversation is largely predicated upon today. We delve into major concepts like fulfillment. Everybody wants to be more fulfilled, but how do you do it? What are the commonalities between the most fulfilled lives? How does one become fulfilled? How do we avoid what Anna calls fulfillment decoys? And then we look at things like spirituality and the incredible health benefits which are related to it, which I had no idea. So overall, I would say that this is a fascinating conversation and one which I hope you guys love as much as I loved recording. Marianne Williamson once said that she admired those like Dr. Yusim as they are the ones who are leading the charge. Without any further ado, Dr. Anna Yusim, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Thank you so much, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So what I find so interesting about you, Anna, is that you come from a very scientific background. So when I think of the field of science, it's very objective by nature. When I think of the work in your book, there's so much of it which is subjective, which pertains to things like spiritual natures of life they're very individualistic in a lot of cases a lot of perception 
So I'd love to know, how have you personally married these two ideas together in your own life? Absolutely. It's such a good question. And that's actually what drove me to write this book. Because just like you said, Joe, I grew up in a very scientific, you know, household. My dad was a biomedical engineer. My mom was a computer programmer. I went to Stanford, studied mathematics there, eventually went to medical school. And, you know, everything was going along in this super scientific way until suddenly things started happening in my life that I felt science couldn't explain. And I started asking myself, what's going on? How do you explain these inexplicable events. And it was things like synchronicities, um, psychics meeting me on the street and telling me things about myself that they have no other way of knowing, like strange things like that. So I became curious. And I had a dream one day of a sign that said the words Kabbalah revealed. And I didn't really, you know, even give it much thought. I was like, huh, that's interesting. And then I went to my bookshelf. Maybe I have a book on my bookshelf called Kabbalah Reveal because my mom had mentioned Kabbalah to me. Maybe she'd sent me a book at some point. Nope, nothing. So a few um, weeks later, I was walking to meet a girlfriend for dinner. And I see the exact sign for my dream, Kabbalah Revealed. And so I was like, that's really strange. And this is right, you know, when all my questioning is going on. So I went inside and it was the Kabbalah Center. And... I started just, you know, picked up a brochure, started taking one of their classes, and it really blew my mind. It changed how I saw the world. And, you know, the thing with science, Joe, is that science is just like you said, very repeatable, objective, empirical. You see it with your eyes. You test it. And spirituality is the exact opposite. It's subjective. It's transcendent. It's very deeply personal. It's, a, you know, not something you can reproduce from one person to the next. And so reconciling these two really different things has become my life purpose and my life journey and really is the reason that I wrote this book. So was this an easy transition for you? Was there over a long period of time? Did you struggle with it? It was, um, as any other big transition, usually transitions are motivated by some sort of pain and suffering. So for me, absolutely, that was the case. I was going through a lot of different things in my life. I had um, recently broken up with a guy that I had dated for five years at the time. I was looking, you know, for my soulmate, was starting to date other people. I was just finishing up my residency. So I was at the point where I was like, what am I going to do? Should I start a private practice? Should I, you know, and um, there's a lot, a lot going on. And probably half the things I'm not even mentioning, a lot of things, and it was stressful. And I was in like a darker time in my life. It was a dark night of my soul. And in those times, you start to question and you start to be a little bit more open to seeing things in a different way than, than maybe you are before. And so I think it was that openness that led me to really start considering spiritual ideas in ways that I hadn't before. And you know, and here I am now, many years later, completely transformed. <laughs> Amazing. So if you don't mind me asking, how old were you at this point when you started going from this transition of the sort of the black and white type of thinking in the world of science to becoming more aware to the shades of grey? How old were you at that point? At that point, it was probably about 11, 12 years ago. So I was in my early 30s, probably had just turned 30. Let's just give a definition for our audience. So how would you personally define the term spirituality? Yeah, so I define spirituality as a connection to something greater than ourselves. And for different people, it can be different things. You definitely don't have to be religious or even believe in God in order to be spiritual. There are plenty of spiritual atheists. And for atheists, rather than connecting to God, 
they can connect. There's something greater. Could be Mother Nature, the universe, a collective consciousness. It's seeing yourself as a part of a whole and being able to feel, you know, things like unity and elevated consciousness through that. The benefits, they seem to be pretty clear. It's that link between science and spirituality. This is where, you know, it becomes really interesting. So benefits like lower stress, improved mental health. Exactly, yes. Like much, you know, much faster recovery from addiction, faster and more thorough recovery from cancer, things like that. Spirituality, and it doesn't matter what spirituality, it doesn't matter if you're religious or if you just consider yourself a spiritual person. And it doesn't matter if you go to church or if you've never ever set foot in a place of religious worship, but actually just have a personal relationship with a higher power. You know, whatever spirituality means to you, the presence of it in your life usually means that you're going to heal faster and more thoroughly. Why do you think that is? What do you think that has to do with why they report these benefits? And so people ask that all the time. And um, it's really interesting because it's so many different factors, right? Since spirituality means different things to different people, for some people, it does indeed mean being part of a spiritual community. And so when you're part of a community, there's less loneliness, there's more support, there's more social impact and social influence. And there's often positive beliefs and life-affirming beliefs, you know, healthy beliefs about, you know, why bad things happen to good people, things like that. And so those are just a few of the reasons. You know, the other part is oftentimes if you feel that you have a spiritual presence or that you're, you know, believe in God to help you through things, you feel that you're not alone. And that is a really, really powerful thing. Spirituality also gives a whole different meaning to experiences and helps you to reevaluate, for instance, the nature of suffering. That suffering isn't there for us to be miserable, that it's really there for us to grow and transform into the most beautiful and evolved versions of ourselves. Hmm. I wonder, I was reading a book the other day on brain plasticity, and I wonder, does something like spirituality over time, does it actually change our brain? Oh, for sure. For sure. There's, you know, a lot of studies showing that. Absolutely. But I think that that's the case with anything, anything that you do, any kind of activity that you engage in on a repetitive, constant, consistent basis will change your brain. It will change it either for the negative or for the positive. And if, you know, for instance, your spiritual activity is whenever you have pain, you ask yourself, what can I do about that pain? And then how much of it can I actually surrender? You know, so you do what you can, but you also then don't just sit there ruminating. You really surrender it to the higher power and know that you're going to be guided and protected along the way. Oh, I love this bit. And I cannot wait to jump into this with you. So this was one of my favorite parts of the book when you delved into this. So I got the idea that when we give ourselves to a higher power, when we look at something bigger than ourselves, it sort of requires some element of being able to let go. Like we are, in fact, surrendering a part of ourselves. So I'm just wondering, could you talk about this process? Where do you get your faith to surrender to a higher power? And what would you say the benefits of doing that are? Yeah, absolutely. It's such a great question. And it's also something 
that you build and cultivate over time. Because faith is often the antidote to all the opposite of faith, whether that be fear, anger, you know, resentment, feeling alone in this world. On the other side of all of those is faith. And so like a lot of people naturally are just born with simple faith. They just believe in God because they believe that's how they were taught. That's how they were raised. And it's never really been questioned or challenged. They just have that. Other people come into the world as skeptics. That's me. I came from a super, super scientific, you know, skeptical background. I'm a natural born skeptic. And for me, faith therefore had to be cultivated. I had to and still have to overcome regularly my own doubts and skepticism and then to choose faith again and again and again and again. And for me, the choice comes down to I could either live in fear and believe that I'm alone in this world and it's all up to me, or I could realize that I have a partner. And how I think about it really is a choice. But then once you make that choice, you see evidence of your beliefs creep into your life and manifest themselves as truth. So it's really complicated, you know, like on one hand, it's a choice. There's a free will element, but then your free will creates your life. And so you actually, you know, it's like you have free will up until you create and manifest. And then you have a little bit less free will because you actually see it all happening. What I love about you is this, that it just creates these such empowering, such positive beliefs. You know, I, I, I can't really think of many more powerful practices that you could do so just talk a little bit in terms of your own daily practice what does that look like so see it's different because there's times when everything seems to be going smoothly and that's a different kind of practice that practice is really you know one of gratitude thank god that everything is going so well how can i give back to others what can i do for the world God, how can I help this person before me? Because I'm a therapist and a physician, so I'm, you know, always helping people. So for me, the daily practice is checking in with God and making sure that whenever I'm doing therapy with my patients, I'm not doing it alone, that I'm always guided, that I'm always able to tap into intuition and give the patient to the extent of my ability, like the best of, you know, what I am able to intuitively sense that they need. So that's one way. And then, you know, there's times when things are really, really difficult. And that's when, that's when, number one, you can reach out to the people dear to you, many of whom could be also incredibly intuitive and supportive. And that's often what I do when things are difficult. The, the you know, few people, like the handful that you really, really trust as your spiritual advisors or your so-called counsel of light. And they will help you and they will pray for you and they will guide and support you. And those people at times like that you really just have to make the choice that I could choose, you know, to live in fear. I can choose to, you know, like succumb to uncertainty and doubt. And sometimes you will because you're human, but you also can choose faith. And you also know that the creator has your best interest at heart and things are going to unfold in the best possible way. Mm. And so when things are hard, you really you have to grapple with that and you have to step more into trust, less into worry and more into trust, less into fear and more into faith. It's this constant dialectic and there's a lot of free will involved until the point that you finally just like surrender. Have you faced any stigma surrounding these beliefs? Yeah, and, and it's such a good question because 
what ended up happening was actually quite unexpected. I expected a lot of backlash and I was ready for that because here I am, a Stanford and Yale trained psychiatrist writing a book on spirituality. So I was like, okay, this is career suicide. I'm going to be, you know, discredited, etc. But the opposite happened. And actually, two presidents, um, former presidents of the American Psychiatric Association, which is the governing board for psychiatrists in our country, supported and endorsed my book and stood behind it, as well as numerous other psychiatrists. And it was after I wrote my book that I was invited back to be on faculty where I went to medical school, which was at Yale Medical School. So I'm on faculty now at Yale. And most recently, Yale has approved the creation of a spirituality and mental health center, which I'm in the process right now of creating there. And so it was really an unexpected and unanticipated response because I did expect to be discredited, but that really didn't happen. And I think it's really because at the core, I'm a scientist and a doubter and a skeptic. And the way, you know, even though the book has a lot of faith and my, as I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you very honestly now with the faith that I have in my own heart, but I tried to be as scientific as I could and as, I guess, rational as I could in explaining things. And I think people appreciated that. Wow. So my curious mind has just spiked into overdrive here. So you thought that you were going to be discredited. How did you have the conviction to, to go ahead with writing the book? I felt like it was what I needed to do. It was kind of bigger than me. It was like what my soul needed to write, you know, and it was, um, you've read the book. So the first two sections of it, um, the first section is authenticity. The second section is soul correction. Those are based on a lot of patient cases. And although there are spiritual elements of it, it's also very, very psychological. And the spirituality maybe is one third and the psychology is like two thirds. Whereas the last section, connecting to part of something greater, that part is predominantly spirituality with, you know, the science to support it. So I think that when people read the book, they actually saw both the psychology, the science and the spirituality and more and more like what I found from colleagues. And the biggest compliment I've received in this process was actually when my own colleagues wrote me and said, I read your book and I want you to be my psychiatrist because this is the part of therapy, psychology, psychiatry that I feel has been missing, that spiritual component. And I now treat a number of my colleagues, my uh, some, you know, senior, but the majority junior who wanted that. And that's just been the biggest compliment to be able to, you know, treat people in my own field who want this thing that I have to offer, which is really not something that is commonplace within the field of psychiatry. Before the book actually came out and it did so amazingly well, I mean, were there any sleepless nights? Were, there, were, you, were you worried? What, what was the situation beforehand? Oh, yes. Yes, there was all of that. And then there was also that deep surrender of saying, you know what? Like, this is what I have to do. And the way that I, you know, because there are, there have been other psychiatrists who've written certain books that have gone a little bit against the grain. And some have gone a lot against the grain. But my whole thing is, I am a psychiatrist first and foremost, and that's a huge part of my identity and profession. And by no means do I want in any way to undermine that. What I want to do is actually integrate within my field for which I have a great deal of respect. I want to also integrate a spiritual element and to do so in a way that the two can coexist, that science and spirituality can coexist, that mental health and spiritual practices can coexist and actually can build upon each other. When I read the book, it actually linked me back to the charisma myth, which was a book I read earlier in the year by 
Olivia Fox could be. And she actually talks about something similar to this, where I think it's a universe transfer, where you get into a situation and you could be anxious, you could be worrying about something, but essentially it could be completely out of your locus of control. So you say a little prayer and you just sort of shift it into the hands of the universe. Is is that sort of what you're describing? Is that the theory, the premise behind this? Absolutely. I think that that is so, so powerful. And with everything, you know, we are co-creators. We are beside and alongside God in everything. So it's not to say that we have to surrender and not do anything ever. Quite the contrary. It's that we do what we need to do and then we surrender the rest. It's like we're co-creating that we visualize in our mind that which we want. We take the steps necessary in the physical world to make it happen. And then we put our hands up and say, I've done what I can, God, you take it from here. If it's meant to be, make it happen. If it's not meant to be, show me what is and pray for it. And then as you're doing this, you always pray for the greatest good of all involved. And I feel as if that this work came into, it came into my life at just the perfect time. Such a type A obsessive over every detail type of guy you know and it's <laughs> which it's i'm like, sure serves you really well in yeah. so many in so many things that's why you're so on top of things that's probably why you're so successful in many ways right mm, and probably why i'll die of a heart attack very young <laughs> <laughs> that's, it's a, that's a risk factor right yeah. and so yeah. that's why uh, yeah so, so for you probably it's um recognizing the limit of your control and surrendering more you know, like recognizing, okay, this is what I'm going to do, A, B, C, D, and then I'm going to surrender. And then I'm going to put my hands up and say, God, you take it from here. Honestly, I love this so much. And this is actually what one of my personal main takeaways from the book was. It's so interesting, like you could give 10 people the same book and they could come away with different takeaways. And this really was mine. It was whenever there's a situation and I can only have uh, so much locus of control over something, just sort of shifting it to the universe, to a higher power. And that really does bring a complete, I think it just brings more tranquility. It brings more peace. And then it even allows you to just move on to the next thing. Exactly, exactly. And it's it's so powerful because, you know, the mind, just like you said, our type A minds, and I have the same kind of mind that you're describing those minds are powerful, and part of their power lies in perseverating, in obsessing, in thinking the same things over and over and over, right? Yeah. That's like on one hand, it's a form of energy and power, and the mind works fast, and it can do that. And yet, on the other hand, that's not powerful at all. It actually disempowers us. So many times I've been like, I've just thought the same thought 10 times and have done nothing about it. I'm just going to stop thinking this, and I'm going to take one action and completely surrender and let this go. And, and then then you feel empowered, then you're actually doing something. And that's the paradox. In not doing something, you're actually doing something. The blessing and the curse of the type A personality. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So I just wonder, could you give any examples of where you have used this power of surrender just as an example in your own life? Oh, yeah. I feel like I use it all the time. I feel like today I used it like three times. Um, What was happening today? Um, 
a number of things. There is this um, one that we're applying for like life insurance or something like that. And, and it didn't, and there was some sort of issue and it was just really frustrating. We didn't know what to do. And then you're like, you know, I'm just gonna, this is so much bigger than me and I have no control. I've done what I can. That's it. Hands up, surrender. And then trying to make an appointment with this doctor. Um, and the appointment, it was the whole thing was like a debacle today. <laughs> and I'm like, same thing. You know what? Hands up. I surrender. It's going to happen when it happens. That's it. So you just practice patience. You practice surrender. And that's it. And you do you do what you can. Those are little things. Those are little things. You know, the bigger things, like it's when, when I was looking for my soulmate. It's like you felt like I felt like, um, not, you know, I kept running into the wrong people and things like that. But oftentimes, if you have repetitive patterns like that, you have to look within yourself to really understand why things like that are happening. Even today with my, you know, the appointments and the like life insurance, I was like, you know what? Why is this happening? Why did both things happen today in order to teach me patience? So I just can calm down and completely surrender all of this. Beautiful. Okay. I'm going to practice patience. I'm going to own that and then let it go. And when I couldn't find my soulmate, what was the lesson? The lesson was that I kept drawing in these emotionally unavailable men, even though saying that I really wanted an emotionally available man. And so the spiritual principle at play was you don't draw into your life that which you want. You draw into your life that which you are. I was drawing in these emotionally unavailable men because a part of me was emotionally unavailable. So I had to own that. And only after I owned that and started to work on that, did I then draw in the man who would ultimately be my husband for whom, with whom I've been now for six years. It sort of reminds me of Frederick Nietzsche, where he talks about a more party, which, which is a love of fate. Nietzsche talks about how if we could go back and change everything, then we wouldn't be the person that we are. So we shouldn't really regret anything what we did in that moment was as much as we knew how to do at that specific time but it's so easy to become riddled down with regrets for life we can carry regrets with us until the day we die but when you think about it, i mean in those moments when those regrets occurred we were who we were supposed to be at that specific moment so it's just the difference the differential between taking a lesson and learning it and not ruminating on a regret is that a, exactly. a, a compa comparison oh absolutely i think that's such a wise comparison and that's exactly right because we're all going to learn our lessons and some lessons we're going to learn the easy way but some lessons we really have to live through and learn the hard way i certainly know this and when we learn those lessons the hard way like through certain people who might have been in our lives who could have taken advantage of us or who we have given our power away to and things like that Oftentimes we needed exactly that, exactly when it happened. And often those same lessons that could be our source of pain or regret or debt or whatever it is that we um, have from these difficult lessons are our graduate degrees for life. And so what you want to say is, thank you, God, I learned my lesson. And to learn that lesson so that you don't have to learn it again. Because oftentimes, like the hardest won lessons, the hardest earned lessons are your graduate degrees for life and the things that actually enable you to move forward into a whole new realm of power and of abundance, really. It's like a whole new, you know, level. If we just delve a little bit further on into the book. So your book is called Fulfilled. When I think about fulfillment and success and whatnot, 
I think I could make quite a compelling case that a lot of the principles in life that make an individual successful, and I don't really like using that word, but I will use it, or should I say, that allows them to achieve their goals. I would say that there are definite common themes. I would say that there are principles which people apply that are almost universal that allow people to achieve their goals. So I would say in a lot of ways that success really can come down to a science. But when I think about fulfillment, on the other hand, my question to you would be, do you think that it's more of a science or is it more of an art? Ah, it's a very interesting question. And I think you're right. You're right. Success definitely can be boiled down to a science. Fulfillment is a little bit more of an art precisely because what everybody needs to feel fulfilled is different. Success is something that perhaps could be more universally defined. It could be defined as ABCD, certain level of finance, certain, you know, uh, uh, romantic partner, good health, things like that, ABC. But fulfillment, when you really look at fulfillment, every person, I think the reason it's an art form is that everybody has to look within themselves and actually into the depths of their soul to ask, what is it that I most deeply want? And to be open to whatever the answer is, no matter what your society says, no matter what your parents say, no matter what your family says, to really be able to be who you are authentically irrespective of all the forces acting on you. Not to say that you need to rebel or to scoff at, you know, the people, nothing like that at all, but to know yourself and to be yourself. And that's why it's an art form because the first step of fulfillment is authenticity and authenticity in and of itself is an art form. I just did a podcast a few days ago with Professor Mark Brackett. He's just released a book called Permission to Feel. And in the podcast we did, he kept hammering home to me this idea of becoming an emotional scientist. Which I, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, which is about essentially becoming so self-aware of monitoring your thoughts, but from a sort of a distance. So do you think that that is a helpful tool in terms of becoming at one, say, with our intuition, with how we feel in certain situations, where our energy goes. Is that a useful tool that could help with fulfillment? Yes, yes, absolutely. Emotions are hugely powerful and for manifesting and also for being who you are. But just like thoughts, emotions can be misleading. And so I think the important thing is to be able to own your emotions, to feel your emotions, to get really, really good at feeling but also not to give your power over to either your thoughts or your emotions. And to recognize that just because you think it doesn't mean it's true. And just because you feel it doesn't mean it's true. That those are both thoughts and emotions are two ways of bringing us a little bit closer to truth. They're descriptors, but the truth is deeper than both thought and emotion. The truth comes from intuition, which is the voice of the soul. And that's why it's so important to tap into the soul into intuition and into our authenticity. What was it about fulfillment, the idea of fulfillment that drew you into it? I think that, you know, as a psychiatrist here in Manhattan, having treated over a thousand patients, this is what people come to me wanting and sometimes lacking. People want to feel fulfilled. And, you know, it's like the Tolstoy book. Everybody 
who feels fulfilled is fulfilled in a similar way or is happy is happy in a similar way. But everyone who feels unfulfilled or unhappy is unhappy in many different ways. And so it's kind of like we were what we were talking about, that fulfillment and being able to cultivate that in your life. It's about knowing who you are, figuring out what it is that you need to be happy, and oftentimes getting rid of the barriers to that in life. And, you know, your soul, who we are, we already are richly fulfilled creatures. And oftentimes what holds us back is all the barriers that we have. And the barriers are all the manifestations of ego in our soul. Um, And manifestations of ego like anger, hatred, pride, control, jealousy, those sorts of things that can just wreak havoc on our heart and mind and keep us from feeling gratitude and fulfillment that's really at our, you know, at our base essence. I love that you use the word cultivate. Do you think that we cultivate, we create that fulfillment in our lives rather than we just randomly stumble upon it? Sometimes if you're lucky, yes, you will randomly stumble upon it, just like love. Sometimes if you're lucky, you will randomly stumble upon love. But just like love, if you don't work on it over time, love can fade. Over time, love will transform. And in order to maintain the same level of love, just like fulfillment, you need to work at it and you need to continue at that same level and do the work to, at first you can get it as a free gift, but then you really have to earn it and you have to keep earning it. And it takes work. It takes very real work to continue to be fulfilled, to continue to be in love long-term. Was there ever a point where you were having these amazing achievements, but at the same time, lack that sense of fulfillment or has it always been a case of you've had both as you've been going through your journey no no it definitely has happened I remember the first time was when I was at Stanford and here I was at this school that I worked so hard to get into and I was there and I should be so happy and yet there's something about me that was feeling a little bit depressed I think that's the first time that that happened and I think at that time what it was due to I didn't have like a community really um shortly after I felt that I became part of a community. I joined um, a neurobiology lab with Dr. Robert Sapolsky. And the people there really kind of became my group and they formed a huge social support for me. So that was really powerful. And that was like a transition. But I felt that then. And I felt that thereafter. Like in a way, even though I love what I do and there's nothing else I would rather do, their achievements really, I need to do it in order to, you know, do the work I'm meant to do in this world. But That's not why I do what I do anymore. But at one time it was. Like now the reason I do what I do is because it's my soul's work and I'm meant to help people. Back then it was to get more achievements to be able to do this. But eventually you realize that the achievements alone actually are kind of empty unless you're really doing the work. You know, the achievements maybe will open doors. They're important. Um, I'll continue to get them because that's, you know, really what's needed in my field, especially to open the center that I'm working so hard to open right now at Yale. But yeah, that's not really what fulfills me anymore. Achievement's great. Like a, it's, it's like another little check mark. But yeah, what is fulfilling is helping people, is deep, genuine connections. It's living your sole purpose, which for me really is helping people. I'm just wondering along your journey, how many of these fulfillment decoys did you encounter on your journey? And could you just talk a little bit about that concept, please? 
<laughs> yes, fulfillment decoys, yes. So those are all the things that we use to fill our inner voids. All of us as human beings have voids, and we're always looking to fill those voids. Having voids is one of these existential things that's just a natural consequence of being human. And you can fill your voids constructively or destructively. Some destructive ways of filling voids are with addictions. People fill their voids with drugs, with alcohol, with certain behaviors like sex addiction or shopping addiction. Or you can fill your voids with psychological things such as money and power and fame and achievements. None of those things are negative in and of themselves. And actually, everyone wants to have some money and some achievement and some they become addictions, however, when the more of them that you have, the emptier that you feel. And that's when we get to the fulfillment decoys. It's when you start to have more and more and more money, but actually realize that you're just feeling blah and more and more blah, the more you have, something's gone awry. And for me, that was with achievement. I would have more and more achievement, but at some point, like, it wasn't making me any happier and quite the contrary. You would think that it should, but it just wasn't. And that's when these things become fulfillment decoys or psychological addictions. So what you want to do then when you recognize that is you look back and you start reconnecting with your soul and ask yourself, what do I really need to be happy? If it's not more money or more achievements or more this or more that, what is it that my soul really wants? And then you start to listen to yourself, to that still quiet voice within that can only be heard when the screaming of the thoughts and emotions temporarily ceases. Do you think that there's a time when this really comes out in force? And the reason why I ask this question is because a few months back, I went through a breakup. If you really like the person, if, you know, if it's a, di- I think breakups are just difficult. Even if you don't like the person, they can be. But I just think myself that during those times, it's like your body is, is constantly looking for distraction. It's looking for these fulfillment decoys the path to healing in that scenario it wasn't the next trip it wasn't going to a bar and hooking up with 10 women i remember i wrote down in my journal that it was like it was more like a sign that i needed myself does that make sense oh totally totally yeah yeah and that you just want to go into that whatever it is that you're feeling however deep and dark and difficult It's to be there with yourself and allow yourself to feel that and have self-love and self-compassion as you go through that process. And, you know, at the end of our life, as we are laying in our graves, like the way that we're going to evaluate our life is think about all of the times, the good and the bad. And if we were able to, if we're able to be grateful for all of them, not just for the good and avoid the bad, but really grateful for everything because that's all part of life then we will have lived a life well-lived. And I think it's exactly what you're saying. You need yourself more than anything else, especially when you're going through the darkness and you need to love yourself and to have compassion for yourself and to let whatever feelings bubble up and to really metabolize and process them and digest them. When we're just looking at fulfillment, you mentioned that the first step is authenticity. So is this the case that This is self-awareness. This is really becoming connected to who we are at the core. And I would love to know really, you know, what to do and know that whatever you say, I am going to do. (laughs) So please take it away. (laughs) 
Right, right, right. So you're asking, how do you connect to authenticity? Mm -hmm. First and foremost, you start asking yourself the question multiple times per day, what do I most deeply want? And it seems like such a simple question at first, right? But you're not just asking your mind, but you're asking all levels of your being. You're asking your mind, you're asking your body, you're asking your instinct, you're asking your heart, and most importantly, you're asking your soul. And as you start asking this question to the many layers of your being, different, you know, answers will start to percolate. And sometimes it'll be as simple as I want a burrito, or I want some rest, or I just want some peace and quiet, or I want to call this person. But sometimes you'll start, the answers will start to actually reveal things about yourself that maybe you didn't know. Like, I want to try something totally different with my career, or I want to go and experience something I've never experienced before, or I want to meet a certain kind of person that, you know, or whatever it is. But just to be open to things as they come up. And what you're doing by asking that question also is you're priming yourself. And so the answers may not all come at once, but slowly but surely, as you're open to it, the answers will start to trickle in and they'll get more and more meaningful, you know, as time goes on. Mm. How important is it, do you think owning our stories i know that that's a chapter in a book how important does that link in with the authenticity owning our vulnerabilities our past whatever we've gone through whatever financial disasters or relationship failures or heartbreaks or anything like that like how important is that to own who we are as and even in our worst moments how important is that in the terms of a fulfilled life it's it's a paradox, a little bit of a question, because on one hand, it's super important. Of course, you want to own your story. And but, you know, owning your story means taking responsibility for your life. It means taking responsibility for the things you did right and for the things you did wrong. It means learning the lessons, um, committing to doing things differently next time around. And like rather than regretting to really transform to transform and to thank God for the lessons that you were given through whatever experiences. Now, that's one part of owning your story. The other part is that our stories are just that. They're our stories. They're not the reality. And so for most people on a spiritual or transformative journey, their stories are going to change a million and one times over the course of their lives. And something that seemed bad won't be bad and something that maybe seemed really good won't be so good over time because you start to see the world anew. And I think the most important thing with our stories is to be able to separate yourself and release your story, to be able to see and to be who you are separate from your story because sometimes sometimes our stories make us shine, but sometimes our stories really limit us. If we just link back this to the idea of fulfillment, are there any themes any correlations any sort of staples that you have seen just from like a foundational level in terms of some of the people which you know are living a real fulfilled life yeah the people who live really fulfilled lives don't have lives that are devoid of challenges their lives aren't perfect they also have drama and trauma and difficulties they also get sick and they also die that's the thing like fulfillment doesn't mean the negation of what makes life life 
What it means is being able to appreciate the beautiful things along the way and to be able to have grace and ease in order to deal with life's challenges. That's what I have learned from my greatest spiritual teachers and the people who really have taught me the most. The other part is that not to give too much weight to what you see in the physical world, because oftentimes things in the spiritual world, there's more going on here than we even know. And sometimes what goes on in the physical world can be deceiving in that way. Things aren't always what they seem. One of the last things which I'd love to cover with you, which I found just, again, just a mind-blowing concept, but yet so powerful, is these ideas of the soul's purpose, soul corrections. So I would love if you could just talk about this concept, please. Sure, sure. So everybody comes into the world with certain soul corrections and the soul corrections are those things that your soul has come into this world to correct you could know your soul correction by asking yourself the question what is the greatest source of pain in my life what keeps coming up in my life again and again and again often much to my chagrin and dismay and despite my best efforts to change it so it could be anything so some examples of soul corrections are addictions. For some people, that's their soul correction. They need to move beyond that. For other people, it's certain things in relationships. Like one of my soul corrections was I kept drawing in these emotionally unavailable men. So my soul correction was to recognize that the reason I kept doing that was because there was a part of me that was emotionally unavailable. It was the mirror principle. I was drawing in what I was. And so I needed to do a lot of work on myself to shift that. And other soul corrections are owning one's power because so often we can give our power away to people, to, you know, all sorts of things and feel disempowered at our core. Um, Yeah, those are just a few. So really figuring out what is my greatest source of pain and then reconceptualizing it as actually, no, that might be my pain, but I've come into this world to overcome precisely that. So how am I going to do that? So this is the scenario which, much to our dismay, keeps repeating ourselves because at some foundational level, there's a part of us which hasn't overcome that yet. Is that right? Precisely, precisely, exactly. And oftentimes, as soon as you overcome it, that self-correction leaves you. It's not presented to you again. You have to get over it a few times and, and show the universe that you're done And then you have the next lesson because our lives are like peeling layers of an onion. There's many, many layers. And once you're done with one soul correction, you get to the next. I remember as I was reading this in the book, I can think of so many different ones which I had overcome. And there's still so many which, you know, I I go through daily, which keep inconveniently popping up. Totally. It sounds very human. (laughs) I know, yeah. I know it's it's so interesting though like when you think about that it's like we're just constantly evolving as we go through these different levels then we face different challenges. Mm-hmm. I, I I so I really do appreciate this concept. So is there a case of as soon as we grow and evolve as long as we are learning lessons along the way then we will then these things will stop presenting themselves. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely people will shift that and When you realize that, you actually could do so many things with your life 
proactively, like actually proactively choosing to grow in a certain way and to work through and metabolize certain soul corrections. So you don't have to have them for that long. And otherwise, you can have the same thing that you are dealing with your whole life because people don't realize what you need to do is move beyond it. You need to like transform. You need to become a different person such that you don't even recognize the person you used to be. You read my mind, Billy, because that was going to be my next question. So my next question was going to be, if we don't learn from them, are we destined to be condemned to these patterns for, for, for as long as we live? Well, that's actually probably the majority of humanity, right? Because people's struggles are often the same struggles over the course of their life. And then there are those people that learn, grow, and transform and truly are able to move beyond and graduate to their next level and throughout their life to see a whole different way of seeing the world, of being in the world, have whole different abundance levels, things like that. So absolutely, yes, we are destined to repeat things until we really get it. And then we say to God, thank you, God, I've learned my lesson. Bring on whatever's next. Those that do not learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. Exactly, yes. But it's a hopeful thing because... You know, even though it's sad on one hand, there's so much hope because everybody can learn from their experiences. Everybody, if they're willing, could move beyond their pain, could move beyond their trauma, can move beyond their drama, can do whatever they need to get to their next level. They just have to make the choice. And when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. You know, it's so interesting because I remember about 18 months ago to two years, I remember I wrote down a list of every single self-defeating every single self self sabotaging behavior that at the time i thought that i had and i was like okay i'm going to tick them off one by one i'm going to go through them i'm going to completely revolutionize myself and uh-huh, you know uh-huh. and, and i love it so i was working through i was going through my list and and if it's a lot of them i did eradicate but what i noticed then was that different ones over time would crop then, you know, as as my business started to grow, it could be like different things in business. So, you know, so it's like as I evolved, my problems evolved with me, but just better problems. <laughs> so and, maybe and that's, that's a the whole thing, right? It's, it's really right. It's not that you're not going to have problems because we live in this world. And in the physical world, it really is a world of duality. You can transcend duality and get into non-duality. And that's a very high level of consciousness with, you know, an enlightenment perspective. But like the majority of us will still live with duality, meaning there's good and bad. And sometimes when you have good, when you create good, it comes with a little bit of bad. And so there's tools, spiritual tools for being able to get rid of the bad, for being able to transform the bad into good. But we still live in this physical world where, you know, there's evil alongside of good. There's hardship alongside of abundance. We are a show rooted in action taken. Based on your work, do you have a challenge for us? And definitely, for our audience, definitely identify, identify your soul correction. Ask yourself, what is your greatest source of pain? What has kept coming up in your life again and again and again? What do you need to break through and identify that as your soul correction? And then start to speak with your soul and connect to your soul to get a better sense of what needs to happen in order for you to move beyond and transform beyond the soul correction. My next question to you, Anna, is... You are now an author yourself. You published a fantastic book. So I would love to know, are there any authors, any books in your life 
which have had a profound impact on you? Yes, yes, so many. Oh, goodness, I don't even know where to start. So the first person, who actually is an atheist, who influenced my love for psychiatry is Dr. Irvin Yalom. He has many brilliant books, including Love's Executioner, When Nietzsche Wept. He's a brilliant psychiatrist at Stanford University. That's number one. Most recently, I've been, I'm uh, currently reading a book by Ananda Devi called Intimacy with the Infinite, and I'm absolutely loving it. That's a current book I'm reading. And there have been so many other books that have so profoundly impacted myself and the way that I see the world, including by psychiatrists like Judith Orloff and Richard Brown and Patricia Gerbard. These are all psychiatrists who are out-of-the-box thinkers and have integrated spirituality into their work. There's also other physicians like Lissa Rankin, who are amazing. And that's just a few. I can go on and on and on. Are there any societal rules or societal norms that in your life, Anna, you love to break? <laughs> I feel like my whole life is breaking norms. Like we talked about, here I am, a psychiatrist, opening a spirituality mental health center and, you know, into spirituality. But the funny part is I like to break norms, but yet I like to do it in a way that doesn't get me in trouble. And so I'm doing it at Yale Medical School, where they're supportive of this and where is my medical school. So I feel like it's kind of my old stomping ground. And so, yes, I think, you know, breaking societal norms is something I love, love, love to do. But I like to do it in a way that actually kind of enables, yeah, the, inter the smooth integration of multiple facets of me and multiple facets of, you know, knowledge, the spiritual knowledge as well as scientific knowledge. My last question to you, Anna, is imagine a scenario in which every person on this planet was tuned onto the same frequency. So if you could give a short but impactful message to the world, <laughs> what would Anna's message be? It would be to shift our way of power from force to authentic power. Because so often in our world, the way in which people feel empowered is through violence, through manipulation, through domination, which are ways in which you really use force and undermine human potential, as opposed to authentic power, which is people respecting the dignity of humanity and being able to look within for their source of truth and looking towards faith and forgiveness as opposed to violence and manipulation as a way of getting what they need and creating positive change in society. Fascinating. There's been so many different ideas to contemplate and to execute on today. So Anna, where can our Freedom Pack family connect with you? Sure, sure. So my website is annayusum.com, which is A-N-N-A, Y U S as in Sam, I M as in Mary.com. And my book, Fulfilled How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life, is available on Amazon and anywhere else that books are sold, and also on my website. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure, Joe. Thank you so much. This was a wonderful interview. <laughs>